This is Tiglath Pleaser the Fourth. And Eric Berg. And this is edition number 17 of Musings of the Living. This is my song called Path to Jupiter. That was my song, Path to Jupiter, which I played at a birthday party slash fundraiser called Creativity Extravaganza. This is an interview with Mark Cooley of Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, who teaches at Gordon Bell High School. How is working at Gordonville High School? It's challenging and rewarding. Often not at the same time. Can you tell us about different instances where it has been challenging and where it has been rewarding? Uh, I'm challenged because I come from a fairly uh, sheltered monocultural background and uh, coming to Gordon Bell has been an immersion in diversity, but a lot of times that is challenging because it's it's hard to anticipate the different values that you might be encountering uh, in students, but the reward is that you become a, a richer person because you, you have a wider variety of experiences and ways of looking at the world. Um, and children are hard to manage because they don't want to be managed, and you can't really blame them. So I, uh, I find it thrilling often. Why did you first become a teacher? Honestly, I, I became a, a teacher. I got my education degree, or I signed up to, to study education because I couldn't really think of anything better to do. Um, both my parents were teachers, and it was sort of the family business, so when I thought of work, it was inextricably linked with teaching. Um, about halfway through university, I realized that that really wasn't a good enough reason to become a teacher, so I stopped taking education courses, and then I, I worked. In, in other areas and eventually came through the, the hard way, which is often the best way, to the realization that I, I actually did want to teach. We've heard you worked at Lower Fort Gary. What was that like? 
that was the best job I could ever have had. Sadly, it was one of my first jobs. And I was just talking with a friend of mine who I worked there, with there, and we both said we had great jobs, and then we quit them to go and have careers. Now, it was a great job. It was a, it had equal parts of uh, profound experiences where you could really learn something and teach somebody something that they didn't know and cared about, help them reconnect with something with an idea of their country or their roots. Uh, and then there were parts that were just goofy fun, you know, dressed up in costumes and pretended who you you were someone you weren't just something people should do more often. We've heard you're a bit of a storyteller. How did you get into that? Well, that came naturally. My, my dad is a, uh, an exaggerator of the highest degree. And uh, so I grew up with an appreciation of a journey being more important than a destination, which is to say that a story is not so, not so much about how it ends, but how it goes. And... Uh, I was taken in by many lies and many jokes, and then it, it became sort of my normal coping mechanism to repeat these things and improvise them. And then it, I studied it formally when I was at the University of Winnipeg with a woman named Kay Stone, a professor, uh, who was very influential and, and also story, she was a storyteller in her own right. And then I moved away to the East Coast where I studied folklore, which is the received wisdom of groups of people and stories are one of the forms that wisdom is encoded within. Then I find people want to listen to them. Why did you move to the East Coast to study that? Uh, because I didn't want to start teaching. I just finished student teaching and I looked around at the class and, and I, I was teaching social studies and a lot of the kids were only three, four years younger than I was and uh, I hadn't seen any, any of the country I thought if I'm going to teach people about Canada, I'd better have seen some of it. And uh, it looked like a lot of hard work, and I was still not that interested in doing a lot of hard work. Would you mind telling us a story? Uh, yeah, but it's, it's not, you know, this is one that's just been rattling around in my head. I didn't rehearse anything for this. It's something that I still haven't quite figured out. Um, so, there's a hunter. The hunter's going through the woods. He's hunting for supper for his family, and <clears throat> here's a rustling in the bushes and a larger rustling further away. And he looks over and he sees there's a snake coming out of the bushes, and the snake looks up at him and says, Help me, help me! The hunter says, No, I'm not going to help you. The snake says, Please. He says, Well, how can I help you? He says, I'm being chased. Well, what can I do for you? Hide me. Where am I going to hide you? In, in your mouth. No, I'm not going to hide you in my mouth. You'll bite me. I promise I won't bite you. So, I had to bend down and picks up the, uh, the snake and puts it in his mouth. And uh, sure enough, this crowd of people comes running through. And says, Did you see a snake around here? And the hunter says, No, I haven't seen anything. And they, uh, they keep running on. So he, he makes it clear to the snake that it's time for him to get out of his mouth. And the snake refuses. And he says, Mmm, mmm. The snake says, no, it's nice and warm and moist in here. I can curl right up. I'm not getting out of here. He says, you better. He said, I'll bite you if you try. Then take me out of your mouth. So the hunter's in a dilemma and starts to walk towards home. He gets to a clearing, and into the clearing comes a stork. The stork looks at the hunter. The hunter looks at the stork. The stork says, something wrong. And he says, oh, I see wrong. The stork says, well, uh, I can help you with that. Oh. 
says, oh, open your mouth. And so Hunter opens his mouth and Stork shoots his beak into his mouth and pulls the snake out, throws it off into the bushes. And she says, oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Well, I saw you were in need. And the stork starts to walk off, and the hunter grabs him by the neck. The stork says, what's, what, what's, what's going on? He says, well, thank you for your help, but I have a wife and kids at home, and they're hungry, and this is how you can really help. You'll be supper tonight. And he starts to walk home. When he gets home, he opens the cage and puts the stork in there, locks the cage, and he goes and tells his wife the story the whole day, and the snake and the stork and what had happened. And he sits down to rest, and his wife comes into the kitchen where the stork is, and, and feeling bad for the stork, she goes and she opens the cage. And she reaches in to let the stork out, and the stork gets out, and as soon as it does, in revenge, pecks her eye out and flies off. Now the question is, who in the story committed the biggest act of betrayal? And that's what's been rattling around in my head for a while. So eventually that'll turn into a story that has that's fully fleshed out, but... That's where it is right now. Thanks very much. Oh, you're welcome. Last podcast, Joel played Kokomo, which was a song he was learning. Now I'm going to play a song I've been learning in guitar class. That was Fields of Gold by Sting. This is part three of my story, Tim's Dream. Previously, Briggs and Tim were playing lacrosse. Tim got hit with a lacrosse ball and fell into a coma. And last time, 
Briggs was just wandering, waiting around because he didn't know what to do with his friend in a coma. And Mr. Plops came and introduced himself, offered some help, but there was no help that he could do. And then Briggs went into Mr. Plops and Granny Pops' house, and that's where the last part ended. Chapter 3. Briggs looked around wildly, not knowing why the duo had started their torrent of laughter again, just after stopping. Whatever are you laughing about, Mr. Plops and Granny Pops? Questioned Briggs. The duo didn't respond, but the laughing Mr. Plops pointed quickly to the door. Briggs spun around as quick as a thimble on the thumb of someone in a drawing machine and saw the magnificent sight that he had been longing for for some time now. The laughing, standing, breathing figure of Tim. This confused Briggs even more than the sporadically laughing Mr. Plops and Granny Pops. Who were these maniacs? mumbled Briggs. He looked them side from side, still wondering why these people were laughing. Do I know these people? Yes, I must. He's my best friend, and they're Mr. Plops and Granny Pops. Of course I know them, muttered Briggs. Good one, Tim, squealed the hysterical Mr. Plops. Thanks, Plops. It was a lot of fun, said Tim, who was calming down. So, you aren't dead or anything, Tim? I thought, wait. What's happening? yelled Briggs. Just as he yelled this, Briggs realized something. Bing, bing, bing. These three must be in on something. They must have been previous acquaintances. As Briggs's train of thought was streaming in his mind, Granny Pops was executing the next part of her plan. She raised her gnarly hand with Tim's lacrosse ball in it, and Gnar yelled, as they threw it. I got it! Briggs said as a tasty rubber ball hit Briggs's face at a velocity pretty much unimaginable by even the smartest physicists. The ball hit the exact center of Briggs's nose and Briggs fell right to the ground into the infamous coma. Tim and Mr. Plops both agreed though that she was just plain straight out weird. You see, Mr. Plops and Granny Pops were secretly Tim's parents, and had been ever since Tim was about four years old. When Tim was about four years old, he'd been wandering around the neighborhood, and Mr. Plops had done the typical creepy man thing, pulled up in a car beside the curb, and asked Tim if he wanted candy. Tim, with a mini lacrosse stick in his hand, of course did want candy, and walked in. To most people, this would seem infinitely stupid as this was the technique pedophiles used across the world to lure unsuspecting children into their lairs. <laughs> Mr. Plops didn't pick up on how he's portraying himself. He and Granny Pops had wanted a kid for a while back, and this seemed like a perfect way to get one. Tim then came over to the two's house all the time he could, and although the two were odd, he liked it. Doing practical jokes just like the ones they had just done came natural to the duo. Mr. Plops had loved seeing Briggs on the ground worrying his mind out. A sick pleasure indeed. Ooh, yes! Mmm! Props, cross! Granny Pop said as she ran out of the door, continually babbling. Tim walked over to Briggs and knocked on his forehead. The key to the spell Granny Pops had put on him, and Tim woke up instantly. Oh!
Sorry, man. We weren't suspecting that. She's going a bit wild lately. What's up with Granny Pops? Questioned the newly awoken Briggs. Well, I do have a theory. Mr. Plops began to explain. You see, she likes her cereal and, well, I'm afraid to say that she can't really feed herself. And so, a few weeks ago, I mixed the cornflakes and the corn pops. Me being a knowledgeable guy, I'm saddened to think I did such a thing. It offset something in her and it just made her do stuff like this. I'm real sorry, Briggs. Tim solemnly nodded his head with a disdainful look on his face. Well, that's it for her if you've done that, said Tim. Briggs then began to understand and then started solemnly nodding his head, and his face, too, gained a disdainful look. The two then walked out to play lacrosse again, with the wail of Granny Pops off in the distance. <laughs> This is a song by me called Edge of the World. Sitting on the ceiling wondering what to do Telephone wires running the way through Cutting the skies along the lines And I'm still wondering what I'll find And I'm Sitting on the edge of the world Watching life and twirl. The moon is on fire, sparking the stars. The torches on the street are coming from the cars. The street lamps light up the alleyways, illuminating our city's maze. Gray shingled roofs lay a rocky way. I know they don't look this dark during the day. From the ceiling's tops, the chimneys poke. Their heads are coughing and blowing smoke. But I'm just sitting on the edge of the world, watching life tumble and twirl. The wind blew my face and ruffled my hair, coming from the night to where I stare. Sitting on edge of the world Watching life tumble and twirl That was Edge of the World. Joel helped me record that song and I wrote the lyrics, sung them, and played the acoustic guitar. I'm going to read a uh, book response I wrote on a book I recently read. To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. There are a few things that will make an instant good book for me. The first and foremost thing is if I can relate to it at all. No matter how far-fetched the situations are, if the characters feel real, or I can somehow believe what's happening, what they're feeling, then the book has achieved a great amount. That's the first sign of a good book. The second sign is the ending. If the ending blows me away, and I'll be sitting with the last sentence, mouth ajar for a few minutes, I know I've read a good book. The last thing is what it's about. 
If it feels like fluff, or like the author didn't have much of a reason to write the novel other than money, then it's hard to read. If the book is expressing a huge feeling that the writer's desperate to get out, or if the novel's bringing something important to our attention, however, then it's worth reading. To Kill a Mockingbird had all these traits. When I first opened Harper Lee's only novel, I wondered about it for the first few pages. Jean Louise Finch, the narrator of the novel, was giving the reader a historical timeline of her family, which didn't attract my attention, and I was worried I wouldn't like it. But as soon as the story began, I couldn't put it down. I have to admit, I'm a very slow reader. And even with short books that I love, Old Man in the Sea, for example, a circa 100-page novel, it takes me about a week or two to get through. I read To Killing Mockingbird in around three days. I'm not bragging or anything, I'm just displaying its grip. It's not a fast-moving novel. It actually is slower, and it just talks about normal life. But I couldn't leave the characters for too long, because I developed such a strong bond with them. I can't really go too far into the ending of the book, because I don't want to give anything away. But I must say, about two pages before the end, my heart was twisting. Not because it was sad, although it kind of was, but because it was so powerful. Just so good. Now, I don't think it's any surprise that To Kill a Mockingbird has important values tied to it. But I found that most all of the main messages of the book tie back to everyone being selfish and misunderstanding each other. There are numerous occasions of prejudice, and you get the chance to see almost every character misunderstand and judge another. The book really connected with me, and I would suggest it to people who like books that show human, real human beings and tell coming-of-age stories that have much more meaning to them than cheesy TV movies. I can understand people not liking this book, however, for its slowness, but I didn't find it slow at all. I could hardly put it down. Overall, this book has been extremely enjoyable to read, and I would call it one of my favorites. For this edition of Musings of the Living, we're doing Mark Knopfler as requested by Calvin Dean Weeb of Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Here's a song by him. Oh, you're gonna miss your daddy when he's gone, when he's gone. Yeah, you're gonna miss your daddy when he's gone, when he's gone. Daddy's gone down that Gallatin road The hen never laid and the corn never grow You're gonna miss your daddy when he's gone Oh, I'd rather have a dollar than a dime, than a dime Yeah, I'd rather have a dollar than a dime, than a dime Daddy's gone down that crossroad track can't make a dollar that he ain't come back home I'd rather have a dollar than a You better love your daddy while you can, 
while you can the song Daddy's Gone to Knoxville by Mark Knopfler, and here's a short biography on him. Mark Knopfler was born Mark Fruder Knopfler to a Jewish family in Hungary, and uh, his father was an architect and was sort of open-minded at the time, and they were living in a more fascist environment, and his open-mindedness included communism, which got them kicked out of the country. So, um, Mark Knopfler moved on, and he, uh, he and his brother went to a school, and, uh, he uh, was inspired by his uncle, who was a har- harmonica player and piano player, and that really uh, got him into music. And so he wanted a guitar, so he got one. And he uh, played with like local, real amateur bands with other people, and he uh, he idolized Jimi Hendrix and Chet Atkins. But he really showed no um, superiority to anybody else. He wasn't like he didn't show any promise. So he just, uh, in university, but he did show a promise for English. So in university, he took, um, he took journalism and, uh, he did quite good. He got a degree and he became a reporter and then he went on and took, um, and got an English degree in the university and he was giving lectures and then he met, uh, his wife, Kathy, Kathy Knopfler and, um, and then he met a guy who was a singer and uh, guitarist, a blues singer and guitarist, I believe, and they uh, got together, and so he went over to London to make a um, to make a band, and his uh, his wife sent him sent him money, but eventually they divorced because it wasn't really working, and um, they made the, they made a band, and uh, and then he finally made uh, Dire Straits, which uh, was quite a good band, and their their first album, although it didn't catch off, but then their second album. Then it, then they really cut off. But um, he ended up just uh, now he is just doing solo efforts and uh, in solo efforts he's put out a few albums and uh, he's collaborated with people like Emmylou Harris and um, actually uh, his latest solo effort came out quite recently and it was called Shangri La. So Eric, what did you think of Mark Knopfler? I really liked Mark Knopfler a lot. Um, you really liked him, or you like him? I really liked him. What about you? Oh, how come? Um, Mark Knopfler, he had like a really good balance and a bunch of different music. I felt like like he sometimes did rock, electric kind of stuff, 
and country and like a combination like rockabilly kind of stuff and like folk even. What is rockabilly? I think it's a combination of rock, 50s rock, which was a combination of country and rock. Like um. Didn't country come out of rock? No. Oh. They kind of like were mutually started together. I think. I think. But um. Anyway, what did you think of uh, Mark Knopfler? Listening to him. Um. Well, I listen. Um. I liked him. I do like Mark Knopfler. Um, what I did listen to didn't really stick out at me. Not that I listened to all too much of it, but what I did listen to didn't really stick out with me. But it was, it was probably in the middle of neutral and really good. Maybe three quarters. Maybe two quarters. Oh, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. So like, like if it's like a scale, seven point five to ten, seven point five, seven point five out of ten. Okay. Maybe seven out of ten. All right. Like, it's, it's, it's good. So what made you not like him quite so much? I don't know. It's what I listened to, it seemed kind of bland. It just didn't... Like, how do you mean? Like, just... If I'm over the moon, just kind of bland, yeah. Like, he's it, it good, but... It's a bit, a bit bland. It's still good, though. How is it? Yeah, I, know, I understand what you're saying, but I'm just wondering how it was bland. Probably didn't listen to it close enough. All right. Um. So before you listened to him for this week, did you have any encounters with Mark Knopfler? Um. Well, I had some of his music, but I hadn't listened to it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Before listening to Mark Knopfler this week, had you had any encounters with him before? Uh, I had actually. Like I, I had listened to um Rag Picker's Dream uh quite a few times. Good with, album. It is. Yeah, yeah, quite a good album. Um. With my mom, and I uh, listened to Golden Heart, uh, which I was not as good, but still really good. And I listened to, uh, and I bought uh, Shangri-La from my mom for her. Uh, oh yeah, for her birthday, cause that's, uh, cause Mark Knopfler is one of her favorites. Yeah. Like that, and probably like Coldplay and stuff. Yeah. Um, and so I bought her that, and I listened to that, and that was really good. But listening to it this week, just emphasizing every single thing and listening to it over and over again, I found uh, a lot of songs that I didn't really listen to before were really, really good. So that was interesting to discover new stuff and also mm-hmm. rediscover stuff that I hadn't listened to because I had almost forgotten about Mark Knopfler because oh. I hadn't listened to him as much. Like I had, I'd been like, oh, I really like. Him. If somebody would ask, it's me good about to it, focus on it for a while. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, if you haven't listened to Mark Knopfler, maybe you could just check it out. If you like that music, like, coming from Joel, maybe it's not the greatest, but you could check it out. Yeah, it's definitely worth checking out. For me, I'd say definitely, I would, I I think he's really good. Um, so just try to get a chance to listen to him. You don't have to. You don't have to, no. But, um... If you have other stuff to listen to, that's fine. That's That's fine. fine with us. That's fine. And if you do... Why don't you get us to listen to it and uh, recommend it to us? And uh, well, we've just listened to Mark Knopfler this week. No, no, you you said earlier. Oh, yeah. If you if you listen to something else instead of Mark Knopfler, we request we, it for us. Request it for us. Exactly.
That was Musings of the Living, edition 17. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you have any requests, suggestions, or comments, email us at musingsoftheliving at gmail.com. No spaces, no dashes, no underscores, no nothing. And here's an outro song. Oh, my God.